Good morning. Ben, I think Caleb stole the show from you there today. If you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. As you heard from Ben, a song in the order of worship, we're thinking of today as Social Media Sunday, just a way to encourage you and to give you some, some tips on how you can help to reach your one, how you can help to share about our church, to share about Christ with other people online. And you can do that on Facebook. You can do that on, uh, through email. Lots of ways you can do that, very simple ways. And we just want to encourage you to do that. That really helps us to increase the impact that our church can have during these days when we can't necessarily just fill the place up. But there are still ways that we can be sharing the good news of Christ with other people. Uh, in the e-newsletter that goes out each week, if you don't get that e-newsletter, I hope you'll put that on your Connect card. Put your email address on that Connect card, and we will sign you up to that e-newsletter. In that e-newsletter, I talk about some really neat surveys that have been made available to us that I want to use that can help me uh, to better understand some of the needs in our community and in our church. Um, and this week's was about your level of Bible engagement. And so it's, it's completely anonymous, but uh, I would encourage you to go online, go to that e-newsletter, click that link, and uh, fill out that survey. And uh, we talked about that some last week, about the level of Bible engagement in this country. And so I would love to hear from you about where you are. And that can also just kind of be a good accountability exercise for you to do, to help you to think through some of those questions and issues. In The Art of War, Sun Tzu wrote, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So recognizing who your enemy is, knowing that enemy as well as possible, as well as you know yourself, being able to identify the enemy on the field of battle is essential to victory. If you've ever been to a war museum, maybe like the World War II Museum in New Orleans or even uh, the, the uh, museum down at Warner Robins at the Air Force Base, they've got these amazing diagrams of all of the enemy and friendly aircraft. You know, for example, during World War II, you had to be able to look up and know and identify, is that an American, is that a, an English, you know, or is that, you know, German, or, or is that from Italy, you know, who, who is that, is that Russian? You needed to know that. Uh, and if you didn't, you could end up shooting down a friend, or you could let an enemy slip by. It was so important to know your enemy and to know yourself. But what happens when the enemy is yourself? What happens when the enemy is from within your ranks? You know, one of the frustrating and tragic uh, things about the, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq is how the, uh, the Iraqi or the Afghanistan defense forces that the Americans were training would sometimes have radical uh, Islamists that would infiltrate the ranks and they would turn on their countrymen. They would turn on the Americans there to help them and, and would kill people through a suicide bombing. The enemy was from within. You didn't know who your enemy even was. C.H. Spurgeon said, Beware of no man more than of yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. Far too often we face enemies within, within ourselves, within our churches, within our nation. 
And, and oftentimes we can be our own worst enemy. Paul lamented this when he wrote in Romans 7, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? This is what Israel and Judah both faced in Amos's day. They thought their enemies that might defeat them were from without. And you remember that first session, the first sermon we did in Amos, I had the map up there with all the nations that surrounded Israel and Judah. They had all these nations that at one time or the other were a threat to them. Assyria was off in the distance, a growing threat for Israel. But the Lord points out in Amos's third sermon that it was the enemies from within who would lead to their ultimate defeat. So Amos continues this funeral-like sermon that we started last week. He's proclaiming a series of woes. And the Hebrew word there for woe is the word that it is a grief-stricken cry over the death of a loved one. God doesn't relish what is to come. He grieves his people's rebelliousness. He grieves the judgment that he knows must come on them. So I want us to use this message for Amos to think about our own enemies within. And I couldn't do it all in one sermon. So we're going to talk about the first enemy from within today, and we'll continue it next Sunday. The first enemy from within, the one we're going to focus on today, is the enemy of ignorance. The enemy of ignorance. Israel was combating incredible and I think willful ignorance. They were burying their heads in the sand. Their attitude was, ignorance is bliss. There's no value in ignorance, especially if it's ignorance of the things of God. Ignorance isn't bliss. It's bondage. And God, our God is a God who has revealed Himself. He has revealed Himself in the person of Christ. He has revealed Himself in the written Word so that we no longer have to be in bondage to ignorance. We can be delivered from that into the freedom and light of His truth. 2 Peter 1.19 says, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Amos was charging Israel with the opposite of that. They were in the darkness. There was no light that was dawning in them. It was their own choice to be there because God had sent prophets. He had given reliable prophetic messages to them and they refused to hear it. So Amos charges them about being ignorant of four key aspects of God. And we need to check ourselves against these as well. Are we harboring the enemy of ignorance in our midst? Are we ignorant of these aspects of God and His kingdom? The first is the ignorance of the wrath of God. Let's look at chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will, it will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? pitch dark without a ray of brightness? Again, Amos is so cheery. You know, he should work for Hallmark writing cards. The day of the Lord 
refers to a point in time when God will display His sovereign will and power to control time, to control His people, all people, and really all of human history. When the Old Testament prophets refer to the day of the Lord, it can be a specific day of judgment, like the day the Assyrians are going to come and wipe out Israel, or when the Babylonians are going to come and lay siege to Jerusalem. It can refer to a specific day of judgment, or it can refer to the ultimate day of judgment. Lots of times it refers to the coming of the Messiah. In the New Testament, the day of the Lord specifically remains the return of Christ at the end of history, when He will come both to judge the living and the dead and also to restore and make all things new. In either case, the day of the Lord is always a day of reckoning. The book of Amos is actually the earliest written occurrence of that phrase, the day of the Lord. But as we can tell from what he says here, it's already a phrase that was in use. It was already a concept the people knew about. In fact, they were longing for it. They were looking forward to this day of the Lord. They thought it would mean deliverance from their enemies and and, and, and greater prosperity for their nation. They thought the day of the Lord was going to bring in this new golden age for Israel. And Amos corrects their ignorance, saying, no, actually it's going to be a day of testing and purification and even punishment. God's people would have to face His wrath for their continued wickedness and rebellion. We heard a similar description of this day from Joel chapter 2. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, put those references there in your notes. They all describe the day of the Lord as a day when God's wrath will come upon Israel and Judah, and they would feel his fierce anger. It would be a day of fire and destruction, of weeping and wailing. Amos says it will be a day of darkness, echoing that plague of darkness that came upon Egypt. Remember that, when God sent darkness upon the land of Egypt. Now, back in verse 17 of chapter 5, if you'll look back there, You'll remember uh, God says that there there will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst. Again, echoing back to the exodus and the plagues. What was the final plague on Egypt? It was the plague where the angel of death swept through the Egyptian empire and killed the firstborn of every family except the Jews because they had put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and God passed over. But God is saying, no more. I'm not going to pass over you this time. I'm going to pass through your midst. And there will be weeping, and there will be wailing, and there will be darkness. It's as if, God is saying, it's as if Israel has become like Egypt. And just as Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, so Israel has hardened their hearts against God. Amos also says it will be a day of doom. No one will escape his wrath. You try to outrun it, and it's like trying to outrun a lion only to turn around and meet a bear. Yeah, you might be able to jump out of the frying pan, but it's only into the fire that you will go. We would do well to remember that we serve a holy God, and His wrath against sin is very real. God isn't friendlier towards sin today than He was in Amos's day. He is just against sin now as He was then. God is a consuming fire. His holiness will burn away all wickedness and all sin. He can't help but do that. It's who He is. 
Sin cannot abide in His presence. But thankfully, thankfully we have Jesus Christ. Thankfully we're on this side of the cross in the empty tomb. Jesus took the full force of God's wrath that we deserve upon Himself that we might become the righteousness of God. He suffered the judgment we deserved. We were God's enemies by nature, children of wrath. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we can go from being His enemies to being His sons and His daughters. Make no mistake. People today are ignorant of the reality of the wrath of a holy God against sinful humanity. And the result of that ignorance for lost people is they don't see their need for a Savior. They think that they're fine if they even believe there's a life after this one, even if they believe there's a judgment that's coming, they believe that God is just going to give them a wink and a nod and a pass. He's going to pass over them. Well, because they're good people. Because they've worked hard. Because they've said nice things. Because they've given to charities. They've bought the same lie that Israel believed, that God is all happiness and rainbows and warm fuzzies. But God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And if we sow sin and rebellion, then we will reap eternal judgment and wrath. That's what happens to a lost world when they are ignorant of the wrath of God. You know what happens to a lost world? What happens to a church when a church chooses to be ignorant of the wrath of God? We end up with a lack of zeal and urgency for sharing the gospel. When we discount the reality of hell, when we fail to recognize the seriousness of sin, we feel less compelled to rescue souls who are, de- who are destined for eternal damnation. We don't share the gospel. We don't make disciples. And we become content to just focus on ourselves and bury our heads in the sand while a lost world spirals into further darkness. Ignorance of God's wrath is a serious enemy to both the lost world and to the church. Its goal is to keep people from the saving grace of God, and the only weapon to take out this enemy is the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, the gospel tells us about God's love, but it also tells us about our sin and His wrath. Jesus died on the cross because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The cross points to God's love and grace, but it also points to our depravity. We need both of those realities to understand and to make a difference so that more people pass through those waters of baptism, so that more people can put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Our churches... And our world cannot afford for us to be ignorant of God's wrath. We must proclaim the truth that sin is real, that judgment is coming, and the only way to escape it is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the message this world needs to hear. That's the only hope that we have. Are we ignorant of God's wrath? Maybe even willfully ignorant. The second thing we have to avoid is ignorance of the worship of God. The worship of God. Let's pick this up in verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Amos returns to this theme once more. So it was obviously a real problem because he keeps bringing it up. Let's read again what Amos said about Israel's ignorance of what true worship was like back in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. You might need to flip a page in your Bible there. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do. Of course, he was being sarcastic there about their worship that they thought was so awesome and so wonderful. They, they thought that their religious meetings looked good. They thought, man, we've got such beautiful services and a beautiful sanctuary, and oh, our choir sounds so good, and, and, and they just were so sincere in their devotions. But God saw through the pretense, and He wasn't pleased. In fact, God says He hated it. He despised their holy days and their assemblies. He refused to accept their offerings and their sacrifices. He no longer wanted to hear the music of their songs. It was just noise to him. They were going through the motions. They were, you know, they were checking off the order of worship. Yep, we did that. Yep, we did that. Yep, we did that. But it was empty. Routine ritual meant to impress God. Meant to somehow manipulate God into giving them more wealth and wine. That's what they wanted. Now, God felt the same way about Judah's worship. It wasn't just Israel. Isaiah was a prophet to the people of Judah. And look what he says in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 16. He says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Jesus called out this same kind of self-righteous religion in the first century. Giving, praying, fasting. These have become spectacles to highlight how pious and super spiritual they were. They thought that if they were loud and showy enough with their religion that they could force God into sending the Messiah to do away with Rome and to restore political power and prosperity to Israel. They had it wrong. And Jesus accused them of offering lip service while their hearts were far from God. And Jesus didn't just confront the Jews for their ignorance in worship. Jesus confronted the Samaritans about their ignorance about worship. Remember, the Samaritans were descendants from the Mesopotamian peoples the Assyrians had forced 
to settle in the land of Israel. So when they took away the northern tribes, leaving just a remnant behind, they brought outside people and settled them there. And those outside Mesopotamian peoples intermarried with the remnant of Israel, and generations later you have the Samaritans. One of the grievances that Amos is bringing against Israel was this competitive sacrificial system that King Jeroboam had established in Israel. Remember, he built a temple in Dan up in the north, and I've got a map up there if you'll put that map up. He built a temple of Dan up in the north and a temple at Bethel down in the south. And, and, and he put a golden calf. If that wasn't bad enough, he put a golden calf in each one. As if he just somehow did not read the book of Exodus and didn't understand about why that's not a good thing. And, uh, and so then he, and he, and he established his own priest system there. And why did he do that? Because he didn't want them going down to Jerusalem. He didn't want them worshiping in Jerusalem. He wanted to consolidate his power. Well, hundreds of years later, after the Maccabean revolt, this takes place between the Old and New Testament, the priest king John Hyrcanus led the Jews to wage war against the Samaritans. They destroyed Samaria, the city. They destroyed Shechem. And then they went to Mount Gerizim. That's where, in that time, the temple of the Samaritans was built, on Mount Gerizim. And they destroyed it. They destroyed that temple. Now, the Samaritans at that time and in Jesus' day, they actually believed that they were the true inheritors of God's covenant with Abraham. The Samaritans believed the Jews in the south were the apostates, and they were the real Israelites. They adhered strictly to the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the five books of Moses. And they believed that God would send a Messiah, and that Messiah would come and restore Israel to them. So, in John chapter 4, when Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well, this history naturally made their conversation interesting. Jesus wanted to share the gospel with her, you remember? And he used the water there as a conversation starter to try to share the truth of God's love with her. And when Jesus started to get personal about her failed relationships with the men and her life and the fact that she was living with a man that wasn't even her husband, she changed the topic. That's what you do, right? She changed the conversation. And what did she change the conversation to? Religion. She got him off onto a religious conversation. She avoided the real relationship problems in her life, dodging her past mistakes, avoiding having to confront her sin by bringing up the religious differences between Jews and Samaritans. <laughs> wow. Isn't that exactly what Amos and Isaiah and Jesus have been talking about? We want to be religious. God wants us to be real. We want religion. God wants relationship. We turn to rituals. God just wants us to turn, repent, turn from our sins and to Him. Repentance and righteousness over ritual. That's what God wants. But since she brought it up, Jesus said, fine, we'll have a conversation about worship. And let's look at John chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. We're going to jump to this part of that conversation. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So when she says this mountain, she's pointing to Gerizim, Mount Gerizim. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. What is it that made the temple of God holy? What made the temple of God holy? Was it the gold? Was it the sheer size and magnitude? Was it all of the blood of the bulls and the lambs and the goats? Was it the incense that was being burned or the songs that were being sung? No. It was the presence of God alone that made the temple holy. We see that after Solomon's dedication in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Solomon has built the temple and it is grand. Oh, it is luxurious. Oh, it is amazing. And look at, look at this verse. When Solomon finished praying, he's at this dedication ceremony. When he finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord, the very presence of God, that Shekinah glory filled the temple. The priests could not even enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord we see the same thing happen after Moses built the tabernacle. He couldn't enter it either. And sadly, we see the reverse of this in Ezekiel chapter 10. I invite you to read Ezekiel chapter 10 where Babylon has come and taken the Jews away. And Ezekiel sees this vision of that glory of God that's descended here in Second Chronicles 7. He watches it lift and go away. And the temple would be destroyed. Because it was no longer sacred. Because God was no longer present there. That's what Jesus is saying. It isn't the location that makes a temple holy. It's the indwelling of the Spirit of God. God is Spirit. And the true worshipers that He wants worship Him in spirit and in truth. We, the church, you and me, we are the temple of God because the Spirit of God indwells us. Just as God's Spirit fell upon that temple as consuming fire, so the Holy Spirit of God fell upon the first church as what? Tongues of fire. It is the Spirit of God in us that makes our gatherings holy. We must not be ignorant of the worship of our God. True worship can happen in this sanctuary. You know, it can also happen at home in your living room as you're worshiping with us online or on the radio. True worship can happen whether the choir gets to sing or not, whether the organ is played or not, whether the PowerPoint works or not. Hallelujah. It can still be true worship. Amen? These are not the indicators of worship. What's in here? Not what's out here, not what's up here. What's in here is what indicates whether true worship has happened. Are we worshiping God in spirit and truth? Are we expressing our love and devotion to Him, not just with our lips, but with our lives? And that directly ties into the third thing Israel was ignorant about. They were ignorant of the ways of God. Look at verse 24. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Now let's go back to Isaiah chapter 1. 
Okay, where he is talking about the worship that God is not interested in. There are empty sacrifices and all of that. Let's go back to verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. So what's the solution? He says, wash. Make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widows. Listen, God isn't interested in our worship if we aren't also righteous in our character and just in our conduct. Last week in Amos chapter 5 verse 7, he says, You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. And next week in chapter 6 verse 12, we're going to look at this verse where it says, You have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. No matter how much our religious activity, if we don't love other people, if we aren't just in our conduct and righteous in our character, we can't honestly and truly worship the Lord God. 1 John 4 says this. It says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a what? A liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have, not, whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Jesus said that the law and the prophets hangs on two commands. Love God and love others. The first four of the Ten Commandments are all about how we love God. The last six are about how we love others. In the first two chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reverses this. In Matthew 5, he talks about how we relate to others. In Matthew 6, he talks about how we are to relate to God. Do you see the pattern here? Our lives have a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension, like a cross. And you need both if we are to deny ourselves, bear that cross, and follow Jesus daily. And so true worship on Sunday requires that I am truly pursuing righteousness and justice Monday through Saturday. We can't be selfish with our stuff on Monday, cheat in a business deal on Tuesday, tell a bunch of lies on Wednesday, cheat on our spouse on Thursday, get into a fight with a friend on Friday, go get drunk on Saturday, and then show up and think we can worship God on Sunday. True worship must be an overflow of our lives Monday through Saturday because only a life of obedience can bring acceptable worship to God. Remember what James wrote. True and acceptable worship before God is worship that's going to take care of the needs of others. It's worship that's going to watch what we say and it's worship that's going to keep ourselves unpolluted from the things of this world. That's the kind of religion that God finds pleasing and acceptable. Let's not be ignorant of the wrath of God, for that can keep the souls of men and women out of heaven. Let's not be ignorant of the worship of God, for that can keep our hearts from experiencing His presence. Let's not be ignorant of the ways of God, for that can keep us from displaying His glory through our good deeds. And finally, let's not be ignorant of the works of God. Amos finishes this sermon, or this part of the sermon, this chapter here. He says, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. 
We've all heard the expression, those who don't learn the lessons of history are what? Doomed to repeat them. And we, I'm afraid, are in danger of that as a country today. There are some very loud voices out there trying to malign the history of our great nation. The New York Times' 1619 Project is one example of that. It is a blatant and false rewrite of history, one that many very noteworthy historians have publicly decried. Yet it's still being taught in schools. Israel was guilty of ignoring and actually rewriting their own history. They had forgotten everything that God had done for him, all of his provision and protection, his patience, his pardoning of their sins, and they conveniently forgot how unfaithful they had been to God. All the wickedness and rebellion in the wilderness, they thought, oh, when we were in the wilderness, we were offering sacrifices, we were keeping the Passover, we were circumcising our sons, we were doing all of this stuff. Go read, go read Numbers and Deuteronomy. They weren't. But they thought they did. Again, the first century Jews also forgot much of their history, which is why when Stephen preached to the Sanhedrin, the sermon that got him killed, he recounted the history of the Jews. He didn't shy away from their wickedness and injustice and sin or the fact that they killed the prophets in the past, people like Amos. Stephen even quotes these verses from Amos in that sermon in Acts chapter 7, explaining that God had turned away from them and had given them over to the worship of the stars and the planets. The German philosopher G.W. Hegel wrote, What experience history teaches us is that nations and governments have never learned anything from history or acted upon any lessons they might have drawn from it. It's sad, but we see every day how true it is. The very idea that American citizens are rejecting the very freedoms that so many fought and died for, trading liberty for so-called security, forsaking the history and the values that have made us the greatest, freest, most prosperous nation on earth, and a nation, I will also say, that has used that prosperity and that freedom and that might to lift other nations up and bring liberty to others, never to conquer and control and subdue other nations. That our people would turn away from that now is exactly what Hegel was lamenting. It's what Amos was lamenting. Are we lamenting that? Are we lamenting that for our churches as well as our nation? Are we lamenting that for our personal lives? How easy it is for us to forget just how sinful we can be. Just how good and faithful and powerful God is. Will we learn from the past works of God to turn from our own injustices and sins and selfishnesses, because make no mistake, the day of the Lord is coming. Every day brings us one day closer to the return of Christ. Amen? I can't tell you when that day will be, but I know it's a day closer today than it was yesterday. That ultimate and final judgment that Jesus will bring, when He also brings restoration and rebirth to all of creation. And you know what else? You and I each have our own personal day of the Lord. There is a day, each and every one of us, We'll take our last breath and we will step into eternity and we will stand before God. Death is going to come. And when it does, where will you stand in eternity? Will you stand in heaven in front of the throne of God because you're under the blood of Jesus Christ who has forgiven you of your sins or will you find yourself standing in hell suffering eternal torment because you rejected the free gift of God's grace? Don't be ignorant of the wrath and mercy of God. I pray that this morning you would come. If you have any question in your heart, 
about where you would stand on that day, I invite you to come. I invite you, if you're watching online or listening on the radio, to reach out and contact us and let us know that you want to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We'd love nothing more than to talk with you and to share that with you. Don't be ignorant of the worship of God, believers. Church members, we need to get our hearts and our attitudes and our motives and priorities right about worship. We need to forsake the ritual and embrace the real. And embrace a life and a heart that wants to pursue righteousness and do justice. Let's not be ignorant of the, work, of the ways and the works of God. Because He does want us to be righteous in our character. He wants us to be just in our conduct. And you know the only way that's going to happen? That can't happen because we can just kind of, you know, just by our own willpower and, and by our own spiritual strength get through to it. No, it only happens because we put our trust in Jesus, because we feed on His Word, because we put ourselves before Him in prayer every day in humble dependence, and we allow His Spirit to bear the fruit of Christ-likeness in us. That's the only way that we can have character that's righteous and conduct that's just. Where do you stand today? Are you ignorant of these things in your life? You may think you know them up here. That's not the question. Do you know them here? It's amazing what can get lost and forgotten in these few inches from here to here, isn't it? I pray that whatever God has said to you this morning, that you won't put your head in the sand. Don't pretend like ignorance is bliss. Deal with whatever God is saying to you this morning. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we thank you for your brutal honesty with us. We don't always like to hear it. Amos wasn't popular in his day, and, and it's hard for us today to, to listen to some of this because we also live in a prosperous nation. Our lives are relatively pretty good and easy. And yet you make us face up to the reality of how sinful and wretched we can be. You make us face up to the reality of the things that we turn a blind eye to, the ways that we promote injustice, or at least the ways we allow it to happen around us when we could do something. Forgive us for our, mistakes, our misplaced priorities, for making worship about us and not about you. And Father, whatever you're speaking to people's hearts today, I pray they would come in obedience. They would come in humility. They would come and they would lay themselves before your throne of grace and ask for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.